Hey, everybody, great to see you. Hope you're having a wonderful weekend. And uh, hello also to those of you joining us from our campuses as well. So glad we get to have this time together to open the scriptures and learn from God's word together. And uh, we're continuing on this series, uh, Make It Real, a study of the book of James. And uh, I got to start with a question. Uh, Do you remember the first car you ever drove? What was your first car? You got it? Okay, so here's mine. Got a little picture for you. Yes, here we go. 1978 Cutlass Supreme, affectionately known as the Blue Bomber, okay? Now, when I drove this thing in high school, uh, man, I loved this thing because uh, I, got to ca- I got a car to drive. I could go out and hang out with my friends, and so I loved this car for a while. Because when I got it, it was already pretty old and things started to break on this thing. Just, you know, stuff like the heater, uh, you know, the speedometer wasn't exactly accurate. The gas gauge was a little off and oh yeah, there was a hole in the floor on the passenger side. I still kind of feel bad for the girl I took to homecoming in that car. But um, anyway, uh, that was a great car for a while. And then I graduated high school and I thought, you know what, I want my own car. I I want something reliable. And forgive me for being a a man of luxury, but I'm not afraid to go after luxurious things like a working speedometer and an actual floor. And so I saved up, I worked hard, and I bought this absolute muscle car. Check this thing out. Yeah, uh, Geo Metro. I don't know if you remember these things, uh, but yeah, that was my first car that I bought. And I know what you're thinking, of all the cars, why? Listen, this thing got 55 miles to the gallon. I am not exaggerating that number, right? So I went to college in Chicago, so driving back and forth to Chicago, this was a good deal. Also, uh, downtown Chicago, that's where I had to park, and so you could park this thing anywhere. I mean, it was about six inches long, so you can fit it wherever. In fact, I remember one time that there actually wasn't enough space to pull into a a parking spot, so my friends and I literally just picked it up and dropped it into the spot. I loved this car for a while because uh, I remember my first date with uh, who is now my wife. We were walking out to my car in the school parking lot, and I'll never forget the look on her face when she saw my car for the first time. It was kind of like... Oh, like disappointed, definitely disappointed. And so I thought, you know what? I need a real car. I need a car that's actually respectable that people don't laugh at when I pull up. And so when I got my first real job, I bought a real car. So this was my third car, Pontiac Grand Prix. This car was cool, this car was fast. I mean, I got speeding tickets in this car. I loved this car. You know where this is going, for a while. Because, you know, then we started having kids or because, I mean, whatever, 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 it just goes on. It never ends this thing for a while, for a while, for a while. And uh, maybe for you, it's not cars. Uh, Maybe for you, it's clothes, houses, vacations. I mean, it can be any number of things, but this is just what it's like living in America. This is just what it's like living in a consumer culture. It's just the next thing, the next thing. And, uh, you know, the, the real thing about this is I, I love this country. I mean, I am not saying America's terrible. I love this country. We live in probably the most affluent, wealthiest society that's ever been. And there are some major blessings that come with that. But we have to be honest, 
there are some things about this culture that don't have the greatest impact on us. I mean, yes, this is the richest country, the, the society that's ever been, and also probably the most dissatisfied and most unfulfilled. Probably the wealthiest society that's ever been on planet Earth, but also probably one of the most anxious, depressed, and lonely societies as well. There, there are some real blessings and real drawbacks to our American consumer culture. And so here's the big question that I wanna wrestle with today. How do you live in a consumer culture without being consumed? That's the question. How do you do this? And hey, we're in this study of James, and so we're gonna spend most of our time in James' letter to Christians in the first century, but I actually wanna start with something that Jesus said that I think perfectly frames up this conversation. It comes from the Gospel of Matthew, where Jesus said, what good will it be for someone to gain the whole world and yet forfeit their soul. And that's it right there. You can lose yourself in this consumer culture. And we see this all the time. People who have everything and yet somehow have nothing. Rich, but yet miserable. And you know what? Some of us are there right now. You have a beautiful house. You have really nice cars. Your kids are in the best schools. You get to go on fabulous vacations and somehow you feel empty, unfulfilled. Some of us are feeling this right now. All of us are in danger of being there at some point. How do you live in a consumer culture without being consumed? And it's my belief that the key is we are gonna have to choose some countercultural practices. I mean, you, just, you can't just go along with the flow of our society or you will end up in, in a place that you don't wanna be, empty, unfulfilled, unhappy. And so we can't go along with the flow. We have to choose countercultural practices that actually lead to life. So that's what we're gonna talk about today. In James' letter, we're gonna look at four different countercultural practices that will keep us from being consumed. And uh, the first one I'm just calling invite early. And what I mean by this is invite God's voice, invite his influence, invite his leadership early in your decisions. So we're gonna be uh, starting out in James chapter four, verse 13, where James says this, now listen, you who say today or tomorrow we will go to this or that city and spend a year there and carry on business and make money. So first things first, James says, now listen. And he's gonna repeat this a couple times and it's kind of his way of going, listen up. I need you to hear this. I mean, just imagine him grabbing you by the shoulders and going, this is so important. This is life or death. This is how you live in a consumer culture without being consumed. And then he talks about going around and doing business. And, and I'm like, well, that just sounds kind of normal. <laughs> I mean, it sounds fine. It, it sounds like business people doing what business people do. So what's the problem with this, James? He goes on in verse 14. Why, you do not even know what's going to happen tomorrow. What is your life? You are a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. He's going, you're making all these plays, we're gonna go over there, and then we're gonna go over there, and we're gonna set up this business, and we're gonna make money. And he's going, you don't even know what's gonna happen tomorrow. I mean, you, don't, you don't even know, so how can you make all these plans? This whole deal about not knowing what's gonna happen 
Like in six months or even tomorrow, I don't know if you've experienced this, I've experienced this. Uh, two times in my life, I've purchased a house. Both times I discovered, I don't know what's gonna happen in life. The first house that we bought, it was our very first house, I bought it in 2008. Does anybody remember 2008? That's right, housing market collapse. I bought my house right before that, great timing. Had I known what, what was coming, I don't think I would have moved forward with the house. Second house I bought, winter of 2019. Anybody remember 2020? That's right, COVID, everything shuts down, right? So I, I know very clearly, I, I, do, I cannot predict, because either one of those situations, had I known what was coming, I would have been, okay, time out. I don't think this is a good idea. So it's very clear to me, you've probably experienced this. Look, as a service to all of you, because I love you, the next time I buy a house, I'm gonna let you know, because we all know a national crisis will be imminent. So there you go. We don't know what's gonna happen in six months. We don't know what's gonna happen tomorrow, but James's point is there is someone who does. And so here he goes. Instead, you ought to say, if it is the Lord's will, if it is the Lord's will, we will live and we will do this or that. He's challenging them to, to ask an important question before jumping into this business or jumping into whatever, to just pause and go, hey, um, does God want me to do this? Uh, does God want us to pursue this business? Uh, is God honored by us going over here and doing this thing? To just pause before stepping in and going, wait a second, what's God's will here? And this is, this is something so important and something that I think can save us a whole lot of heartache, a whole lot of regret, a whole lot of pain to just invite God's voice early in our decision-making process. Now, if you're like me, I'm a Jesus follower. Many of us here today are Jesus followers. And you're probably going like, yeah, well, I, I do that. I mean, that's Jesus is Lord of my life. And so I invite his voice into my decisions. And here's the thing. I thought that I did this, but I've realized recently that many times in my life, I thought I did it and I actually didn't. Because what I actually did is I made a decision without inviting God, but then invited God in after the decision was already made. And I think we do this all the time. It's like, it's been your dream to open a restaurant. It's what you've always wanted to do. And then boom, an opportunity shows up and you step into it because this is your dream. And then pretty soon, oh, there's a perfect location. Let's rent this place. Okay, now we're building the menu. Now we're hiring the staff. And it's like opening night and you're, God, we invite you into this. This is your restaurant. We want you to be a part of this. Or maybe it's a relationship. You meet someone, you like this someone, you like them a lot. So you go out on a date, you go out on another date, you're starting to fall in love. And then there's a proposal. And now you're planning a wedding, a, a dress is bought, a DJ is hired, it's rehearsal dinner and it's God, we invite you into this marriage. Job opportunity, and it's a good one. We're talking pay raise, promotion, more responsibility. And it's kind of like, well, duh, this is a great opportunity. And so you take it. And there you are sitting at your new desk in your new office at your new job and just, God, I invite you into this. And I think James's point is too late. It's too late. 
I mean, there's nothing wrong with inviting God in where you are, but you haven't actually invited him into the decision. You invited him after the decision was already made, and that's, that's different. I believe Jesus wants to be Lord of our lives, and, and so he wants to be invited in before we step into the opportunity, before we decide to start dating, and before we go to the interview about the new job. I've just realized there's been many times in my life when I thought I was inviting God's leadership, but I already made the decision. And so it's a challenge. Invite his voice early. And, and what's great about this is that many of us have an opportunity to do this even this week because there's a big decision on the table in your life right now should I take the job should we move should we buy it should I go to college which college should we take this relationship to the next level you have an opportunity to invite God's voice early in the conversation. And I'm telling you, this could save you a lot of pain, a lot of heartache, a lot of regret. And now if you're in that space and you're going, yeah, I got, I got a big decision and I wanna invite God's voice early. Um, how do you do that? Like, how do you seek God's will? <laughs> it's a great question. So let me just give you three really, really practical ways. We'll do this quick. Uh, three ideas, scripture, godly people, prayer. First off, scripture. God has revealed his will in his word. And so if you want to know God's will, read his word. So search the scriptures regarding the decision you have before you. Secondly, uh, godly people. I'm talking about godly people in your life who are wise. And I try to not make any major life decisions without inviting the voices of, of people who are older, wiser, and godlier than me. And this one practice will save you all kinds of grief. And then thirdly is prayer. Just pausing to pray, God, uh, what, do you, what do you want me to do here? God, would you lead me? Would you guide me? Would you reveal the way? It's just inviting God's leadership through prayer. This, these three ways are how you can invite his voice early in to the conversation on any key decision in your life. And like I said, I think this will save you a whole lot of heartache, pain, and misery. And that's actually what James wants to talk about next, pain, misery. So this brings up uh, our second countercultural practice, what I'm calling hope wisely. And by this, I mean, be very wise what you put your hope in, in this consumeristic culture, or you will be consumed by it. So James chapter five, verse one, similar phrase. Now listen, there it is again, listen up, don't miss this. Now listen, you rich people, uh-oh, weep and wail because of the misery that's coming on you. What an uplifting scripture. <laughs> listen, you rich people, weep and wail because of the misery. Misery is coming, James says. Now here's the good news. These words were not written to you. Phew. <laughs> Okay, James is writing to uh, these people that were in his church in Jerusalem. But because of persecution, they have scattered into the surrounding regions. So these are believers who are now displaced. They're like refugees. They've had to flee their homes. 
their jobs, their communities. And so they are scraping by, they are struggling to make ends meet. And what's happening is there are these wealthy, these rich landowners who have these huge farms and they are taking advantage of these displaced Christians. They're working them to death and they're paying them hardly nothing. And so when James says, you rich people, he's talking about those wealthy landowners who are taking advantage of the Christians. So good news, he's not writing these words to you. Bad news, what he's about to say absolutely applies to us because we're rich. I mean, again, we live in the most affluent, wealthy society that's ever been on planet Earth. So we would be wise to pay attention to the warning that James has for us here. He says, weep and wail because of the misery that's coming. Why? Okay, here we go. Your wealth has rotted, moths have eaten your clothes, and your gold and silver are corroded. That's interesting. He's describing the wealth of these rich landowners. He says, your wealth is rotted. And he's talking about grain because they're farmers. Their, their wealth is based on their farming. And so if their grain, if, if there's water damage, it's rotten, it's ruined. If rats get into it and do what rats do, I mean, it's ruined, it's rotted. And so he's saying, look, it's vulnerable. It's vulnerable what you're putting your hope in. He says, moths have eaten your clothes. That's weird. <laughs> but keep in mind, we live in a world where our houses are like almost perfectly sealed from the elements, from water, from critters, and from bugs. And in the first century, their, house, their homes were not like that. And so bugs, moths could get in and eat stuff and ruin your clothes. And he says, your gold and your silver are corroded. And you're going like, coins don't rust. Like, what is this about? Ah, but they did in the ancient world. I learned this this week because the coins in the ancient world were made of mixed metals, unlike our pure metals, and so they would actually corrode. So James's point in all this is what you have put your hope in, your wealth, is vulnerable, it's at risk, it's temporary, and so be careful. But he says, weep and wail because misery is coming. And it's like, why is it so, I mean, why so despondent? Why, why is it such a big deal? And the answer is because this is their everything. And when you put all your hope in something and you lose it, well, you've lost everything. And so that's the warning here. Be careful about, be so wise about what you choose to put your hope in. Because if you put it in something that's vulnerable, that's temporary, that, that fades away, man, you're setting yourself up for misery. Because when you put all your hope in something and you lose it, then all is lost. And so uh, a question for us to wrestle with today, what are you putting your hope in? And is it vulnerable? Because none of us wants to end up losing everything. So what have you put your hope in? And how do you know? Like, how do you know what you're putting your hope in, your trust in, what you're banking on? And, and personally, I think it's just, it's just helpful to ask the question, okay, what is it? I mean, deep down, what I really think, what is it that when I say, okay, when I get that, okay, when I get there, when I have that, experience that, then I'll be happy. Then I'll be good. Then I'll be whole. So what is that? 
That's how you know what you're putting your hope in. When I get the promotion, when we have kids, when we get the house, when we get to vacation, when our savings account reaches, I mean, it can be any number of things. When we get out of debt. Now, none of these things are bad. In fact, I think everything I just said is very good. But the problem is when you put all your hope on something and you lose it, then all is lost. And so James just cautions us to be so wise because you could be setting yourself up for heartache here. And so what is that thing that if you just go, if I lost that, I would lose everything. Be careful what you put your hope in. And maybe you're wondering, like, where does James come up with this stuff? Like, that's good. That's really good. Where does he come up with this? And the answer is, I, I think he's basically stealing material from his big brother. I think he's just expounding on the teachings of Jesus. So this, again, comes from Matthew's gospel, from uh, the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus' most famous sermon, where Jesus says, Do not store up for yourselves treasure on earth where moths and vermin destroy and where thieves break in and steal. Sounds familiar, right? It's the same idea. Jesus goes on. But... Rather, store up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where moths and vermin do not destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Jesus just says, look, store up treasure in heaven, not in what is vulnerable and what can fade away. And I think what he's saying is invest your life in what has eternal significance, that's a good bet. Invest your life in what will last forever. Invest your life in your relationship with Jesus. Invest your life in people. Invest your life in the church of Jesus, in his mission in the world. This is how you can put your hope in something that is strong and stable and that will never fade away. And so it's a challenge to think about what we're putting our hope in and to make sure that we're investing our lives in the right place. Now, something that I've noticed, and I bet you've seen as well, is that when a person puts all their hope into something, that person can be pretty desperate about protecting that thing. Because again, if you lose that, you lose everything. And what this can do is it can cause us to say things, do things that, I mean, there's kind of no other way to put it, but just, just aren't right, that are just sketchy. And so uh, the third principle, uh, the third practice that we're going to talk about today is this, do what's right. In this consumer culture, we have got to make the choice to do what's right no matter what. So we're now on to verse 4 of chapter 5 where James says, Look, the wages you failed to pay the workers who mowed your fields are crying out against you. The cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord Almighty. Now again, he's writing specifically to these rich, these wealthy landowners. They're the ones who are failing to pay. And the mowers and the harvesters, I believe these are the displaced Christians, these refugee Christians. So what you have is you have these wealthy landowners who are, see these refugees coming in and going, oh, this is an opportunity. I mean, there's an opportunity for us to get ahead because these people are desperate. And so they're not paying them fairly. 
and these Christians are struggling to be able to get by. They're struggling to be able to provide for their families. And uh, the wealthy landowners are just getting wealthier. It's a mindset that I might describe like this. Uh, good for me, bad for them. And I'm just saying, in our consumer culture, there are all kinds of opportunities to operate like this. All kinds of opportunities to cut corners, take advantage of people to get ahead, use people to move forward. It's just, you know, good for me, bad for them. It's, it's just kind of part of our consumer culture. And those of you who are in business or help lead organizations, I mean, you know that labor, the cost of labor is a major variable, a major factor in whether or not you make money or don't make money. So on the one hand, these wealthy farmers going, hey, here's some cheap labor that we can take advantage of. You're just going, well, I mean, sorry, it's rude, but that's just how business works. That's just kind of, I'm sorry, that's how business works. And, and here's the problem. That's not how God works. That's not how God works. I mean, Jesus taught greatest commandment, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul and all your mind. And then what? Love your neighbor as yourself. And so, I mean, I think Jesus would word it like this. It's gotta be good for me, good for them. That's what it has to be. For, for the Jesus follower, just, there is no place in the life of a Jesus follower for good for me, bad for them. Because that's not what Jesus taught. In fact, I think Jesus took this one step further even because he embraced the cross. He suffered and died in our place to set us free. In fact, Jesus, I think it's this, bad for me, good for them. And aren't you glad that he chose that path? And now he invites us to live sacrificially as servants for the benefit of others. So in a sense, he's inviting us into a version of bad for me, good for them. But I think really what we need to be about as believers, is it has to be good for me, good for them. It cannot be good for me, bad for them. It just goes against who God is in the life he's calling us to live. And so a challenging question for us today, is there a place in your life where you are operating or have operated as good for me, bad for them. Maybe another way to say this is, is there something you need to make right? I mean, is there somebody you owe? Maybe you had a roommate months ago, years ago, and uh, you never actually paid them what you owed them. It was a long time ago, but what that was was good for me, bad for them. Uh, do you need to make that right? Do you need to pay them back? Uh, did you tell the truth? There was that situation you got called in and asked to report, you know, what actually happened. Did you tell the truth or did you protect yourself? Good for me, bad for them. And I just wondered, do you need to make that right? Is there somebody you took advantage of? Facebook market, I mean, you made some good money on that deal. It's not your fault that person's a sucker. Um, good for me, bad for them. It just, there's no place for that in the life of a Jesus follower. Do you need to make it right? Is there something, is there something that you need to make right? Because what God is calling us to do is reflect his character in the world. And Jesus taught us, love your neighbor as yourself. It's got to be good for me and good for them.
And so is there something, is there something you need to make right? Now, we're talking today about countercultural practices that we have to choose in order to not be consumed by our consumer culture. And I don't know if it just hits you like, man, why does this have to be so hard? You know, it's like, why, why is it that we have to be so intentional about this so we don't get swept up into it? And of course, it's, you know, living under the pressure of a, of a wealthy consumer culture, but it's also, it's also in us. I mean, don't you feel that gravitational pull toward more and more and more? There's just something in us that's like a black hole that we're always trying to fill the emptiness. And I think that's true of every single one of us as part of human nature. And the truth is, if you're going to get through this consumer culture without being consumed, we have to do this fourth practice, which is we have to set limits. We have to find ways to say, okay, that's enough. Okay, no more. I'm going to set a limit. I'm going to set a boundary here. So uh, last verse from the book of James we're going to look at today. James says, you, again, to these wealthy landowners, you have lived on earth in luxury and self-indulgence. You have fattened yourselves in the day of slaughter. Just vivid language that just kind of describes more and more to the point that overindulgence, you're literally getting fat on this. And again, this wasn't written to us, but it definitely applies to us because our culture is built on more for a while, the next thing, and there's just something in the human heart that's never, ever satisfied. And so we gotta set limits. And I think Jesus has something powerful to say about just this whole more, more, more thing. This comes from Luke's gospel when he said, watch out, be on your guard against all kinds of greed. Life does not consist and an abundance of possessions. It's like he's going, you will not find life here. And just accumulating in more and more. It's not gonna give you what you want. It cannot deliver. You will not find life here. And so we've got to set limits. And so I wanna spend uh, the remainder of our time, just a couple minutes, talking about uh, a couple very, very practical ways that all of us can set some limits in healthy ways. And these are some things that I do in my life, in my family, and I just hope uh, they'll be helpful for you. And if you're curious, I stole pretty much all these ideas from Pastor Jeff. I mean, he's got this book, Satisfied, his stuff is great, and so he's not here, don't tell him, but all of this is his. Okay, uh, the first one, well, I'll just list them all out right here. Uh, appreciate, give, deny. This, this is how you can practically set limits in your life. Okay, first one, appreciate. Um, I try every morning to start my day the same way, with a cup of coffee and my journal. And by the way, the setting limits thing does not apply to coffee. That's different, okay? Okay, probably does, but I'm, I'm working on it, all right? Um, cup of coffee and my journal. And what I do with my journal is I try to list out three things, this might sound really familiar to you, uh, three things that I wanna pause and appreciate from the previous day. To just say, God, thank you for that. And I try to focus in on stuff that I already have. 
because doing so, it like short circuits this gravitational pull for more and more and more in overindulgence. And so simple things like, uh, you know, this weekend I wrote down, uh, just thank you. I got to go out to dinner with my daughter, okay? That's a big deal. So we went out for pizza. It was really good, great conversation, and just, uh, I just want to appreciate that moment. Other things you might put in there, uh, a piece of clothing that's just, that you just love. Uh, a room in your house is just like great space, but you just pause and go, okay, this thing that I already have, that God has already blessed me with, I just want to appreciate it. I just want to express my gratitude for it. I think this short circuits the insatiable desire for more. So that's appreciate. The second one is give. All right, math. I don't really like math, but just think about it this way. It's hard to accumulate more and more and more if you give some of those things away. It's simply a math problem. And so the invitation here is to give. Now, let me frame this up. The reason that we give, the reason that we pursue generosity is because we are designed to reflect our creator and our God is so incredibly generous in his creation in giving his son on our behalf. And so the reason we pursue this is to reflect him. So generosity, giving. Uh, I'll challenge you to do one thing this week. Find something that you own that you should probably give to somebody else because you don't use it and somebody else would love it. So Jeff's phrase for this is find that item's rightful owner. You got a snowblower, you never use it. You got a pair of boots, they're great, you just never wear them. You got a coffee grinder, it's almost brand new, but you just, you just don't use it. Find somebody who would love it and give it away. Choose to give, it just, it does something in the human heart that combats, that fights, that I gotta have more, I'm never satisfied. And then secondly, I mean, I just challenge you to, to give away part of your income. And uh, this is something that my wife Katie and I have done since we were you know, first married, to just say, okay, we're gonna choose to live on this much of our income and this percentage, we're just choosing to give away. And for us, it's always been, we're gonna give to support the ministry of the church that we're a part of. And I, I just challenge you to do this. Because again, I think it is so healthy for us to just set that boundary. Okay, I'm gonna live on this, and on this, I'm gonna give away. And so I invite you into this. I mean, if you're currently giving nothing, I invite you to take a step, have a conversation with your spouse or if you're single with yourself and just decide, okay, you know what? I think I'm comfortable with, with giving away this percentage of our income to our church or to uh, you know, a great Christian organization in the city that's doing amazing ministry, but just, just take this step. I think it's incredibly healthy. If you're already giving, bump it up a little bit. I, I think it's so good in combating that gravitational pull of more of our culture. Uh, last one, deny. You might just say, in Nancy Reagan's words, just say no. That was probably not helpful. Okay, here's where I'm getting this idea. Uh, again, the teachings of Jesus. Then Jesus said to his disciples, whoever wants to meet my disciple must deny themselves. This is where I'm getting the idea. Deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. And this, the rest of this is probably familiar because we talked about it at the beginning. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me will find it. What good will it be for someone to gain the whole world and yet forfeit their soul? 
There's just this essential part of following Jesus, of denying the desires within us. And it counteracts the insatiable desire for more. So here's the challenge. Say no to something this week. Deny the desire to buy something. So you know what, I think, uh, I think I got enough pairs of jeans. I think we can drive the car for one more year. I don't think I need another streaming subscription, but just find something to say no to. And if that goes well, do it again and keep doing it. And so three very, very simple practices on saying uh, no, uh, appreciate, give, and deny. All right, so uh, let's, uh, let's wrap up where we began. Uh, my first car, look at this beauty. Just another opportunity to take it in. I loved that car for a while. And then I needed something of my own, something reliable. Loved this very small car for a while. And then I needed a real car for a while, for a while, for a while. I mean, where does it end? Now I have two teenage drivers. And I'm like, what would I give for that Geo Metro? I'm telling you, it never ends. And so this big question, how do you live in a consumer culture without being consumed? And here's my final challenge. You will be. You will be consumed by it. You'll get burned unless, unless you take intentional countercultural steps. And so the challenge is, what are you going to do this week? What needs to change? What practice do you need to adopt so that you don't get consumed? Now, I wanna close our time by just giving you an opportunity to, to reflect and to worship. And so I wanna invite our worship teams back in each of our environments. Uh, our worship team picked out a song that just is perfect fit for our subject today. It's a new song for us, so you may not know the words here, but this just might be a great time to, to reflect, soak in these words, and just express what's in your heart to your God. So let me pray for you, and then we'll worship together. Oh, Heavenly Father, we just confess that there is something broken in our hearts that's just never satisfied, that just always wants. And God, we know that the only place that we can find the fulfillment that we're looking for is in you. But man, we struggle, God. And so would you meet us in this struggle? Would you guide us toward you? Would you grant us wisdom in our decisions in this culture? Would you teach us to be content? God, we want to experience life in you. And so we pray these things in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen.